Welcome to Out of the Blank. To another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast here, Douglas McLeod. Douglas, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. You want to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Thank you, Robbie, for inviting me today. Yes, I'm uh, Douglas McLeod. I am the chair of architecture at Athabasca University. It's um, a virtual university, though, so I live in Canada's Okanagan Valley, but I work with students all over the world. Now, when we talk about virtual, virtual, like I know that's a, a, a lot of your work, for instance, when you're talking about uh, living systems, for instance. What exactly could you tell me a little bit about your work, just so I get a basic understanding of a lot of the things that you do? My work kind of is that at the intersection of design and technology, where the cutting edge technologies really start to impact the world of design. So we're looking at things like, rather than just sustainability, we're starting to look at regenerative design and what that means. But even more so, because we're a virtual university and all of our courses are online, we're starting to look at new ways that design can be done in this virtual world. And in some ways it's better, and in some ways it's still got some limitations as well. Now, I think my knowledge in at least virtual education is where I've just seen technology kind of take place. I've talked to a lot of people with virtual reality and using ways to be able to take tours to museums without necessarily going there. It's easier when you have a bus full of kids not to lose one of them if they're all still sitting in class wearing a virtual headset. Um, but um, what, uh, I guess, new designs or new technology are you working on? Yes, we're, we're actually starting to look at how artificial intelligence can be used to teach things like energy efficiency. So we're developing a energy efficiency micro-credential in which the learner will interact with up to 10 different artificial intelligences to learn about this building. So what we've done is we've created at, we do have a physical campus up north of Edmonton. Um, and on that campus, we've created a simulation building in which the student or the learner explores the building interacts with the artificial intelligences and learns about energy efficiency. What exactly can these artificial intelligences teach, teach them about energy efficiency? It's really quite interesting because a lot of what we've now come to understand about design and business and almost everything is that so much of it comes down to the personal relationships. And so what the artificial intelligences do, what they can simulate is that environment where say you're dealing with somebody who's difficult. And they can give the learner the experience of how you still have to move forward and how you have to learn diplomacy, really, in order to work with all sorts of different kinds of people. Now, because we are heading into a digital world where I know AI can solve a lot of capabilities where at least humans haven't. Like, I know I've talked to someone, um, a lot of people that work in AI, especially like in the futurist movements and people who are futurist chairs in London. Um, and they talk about the, I guess, the excellent capabilities of AI. But I mean, when it comes to education, when it comes to dealing with user experience as well, too, how do you get that interaction to go, I guess, smoothly in a sense? I mean, like, is it going to be capable to be able to teach a person like me who's never used AI in their entire life? Well, yes, actually, it's it's really easy to do. We're working with a company called Amitros Learning. And so in the micro-credential, what you do is I'm working on the facilities management module. So you log in and you get an email 
from an AI and it says, look, we're having a problem with this building. Can you troubleshoot it? And then you send back an email and you ask for, you know, you ask a couple of questions, the AI interacts with you. And sometimes, and, and this is why it's important, um, in some of our, our faculty of business is also doing this, but they've developed characters who are really difficult to work with. And so you have to learn how to do that as well. So yes, anybody can do it because it uses natural language processing. So at the moment you're typing things in, in the future, and I've seen a demo of this with Amitro's learning, you'll be actually speaking. Uh, you'll be using voice to talk to an AI and they will talk back to you. I've seen it and it, it's surprisingly engaging. Now, in a sense, is that like making smart buildings? It's not necessarily maybe not technology like the building can talk to you like an Alexa can. At least I don't know if that's what you mean, but I think it means more like smart buildings in a sense of like making them more, I guess, stronger when it comes to where they're being located uh, structure wise and also the fact of maybe making them, I guess, if you're looking in a compact city would make them more. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, would make them more, I guess, I guess planned better for a city that's a bunch of people stacked on top of each other. I mean, if we look at cul-de-sacs and neighborhoods now, there are houses that look exactly the same. They're side by side to each other. And this usually complexes, apartments or neighborhoods. I mean, there's some, some spaces, depending on when the building was built, there's a lot of gaps in between where, I mean, people might like those alleyways, but also if you're talking about an expanding city out, if you can have more people compact into a uh, specific uh, location, I would say. Well, you've actually, there's a lot of interesting things that you just said there. Um, the, the first and foremost, though, is let's talk about smart buildings. Um, we want to go beyond smart buildings. A smart building, as we'll say, has a certain level of intelligence, but by its very nature, is not going to get any smarter. We actually want buildings that learn, and that's where artificial intelligence comes in. We're also looking at digital twins. So in this whole scenario, a building becomes what we call cognified so that the building can actually learn and its digital twin could very well have a discussion with you about its performance to say, for example, I think the humidity is too high in here. Uh, here's what we need to do. Or it could alert you to the fact that there's a leakage in, in, in the roof or in the walls or something like that. And it might actually speak to you. It might send you an email. It might uh, call you on your cell phone to say that something is wrong. How do you cognify a building? Well, the um, here's what we do. Imagine the building, the physical building, and it's loaded with sensors. And so those sensors are constantly reporting about temperature, humidity, natural light, and other things. And then that provides the intelligence or the data for the building then to become an artificial intelligence. So imagine if we can create artificial intelligences that are mimicking people, there's no reason we can't make one that mimics a building. And so the building quite literally might call you up to say that, um, that it's detected uh, volatile organic compounds in the, uh, the lobby space. So would this be used like for, could this be used for private circumstances? Would this be used specifically for public circumstances? I mean, that's interesting when it comes to like, if you have a contaminant or something, if you're dealing like in a lab, if there's an exposure or something like that, you could have the building alert you that there's a leak or you could have, even in a public scenario, you could alert to maybe a dangerous hazard that's happening in the building that maybe people aren't know of. That would reduce fires. That would reduce so many incidences that we see on television on a daily basis. But would it be used for the private sector as well too? Let's say, 
for example, someone has a carbon monoxide leak in their house, something that is, we have sensors, of course, but how much of those sensors are being, you know, replaced and put new batteries in? I know they beep and things of that sort, but we have smoke detectors. And for me, I'm looking over in the corner over here. I took mine off the wall. I don't necessarily start fires and I don't like candles in here, but I also think, you know, I don't know. I, I took it down at one point. It kept beeping too much. Yeah, and that's the thing. We need to look at the way we interface with all of these things to make it so uh, so it's not onerous to do it, but rather it might actually be fun. And the reason I mention that is because if you look at the history of any communications that the humans have ever got involved in, it always starts out people have these very lofty ideas that things will only be used for serious purposes, but they don't take off until they're used for what some people would call frivolous purposes. So for example, the internet was supposed to be a, a network to connect one cute computer to another and share data, but email proved to be the killer app. And you can go all the way back, telephones were supposed to be a business tool and the original bells did not want to have what they called idle chit chat happening on those telephones. But when they did happen, all of a sudden the telephone industry just exploded then you can it's the same the World Wide web was about supposed to be about information management instead it's a place to post pictures of your cat so you can see these social uses are very very important and it may be that your building will friend you on Facebook in the future and this is this is where we're, we're thinking that these things would happen because this is the way humans like to operate they like to have that social application of what they're doing well, how do you manage that to where artificial intelligence doesn't just end up like, I mean, that, that idea of a building friend requesting somebody on Facebook or something like that. I mean, then you're going to have people that are going to be like, well, maybe this thing, if it's cognitive or it has this form of intelligence, then maybe you should have its own rights and maybe people shouldn't be living inside of it. I know that sounds crazy, but I mean, we, we have Alexa devices. We talk to these things. We get very personal with it. People even dress up their Roombas, but the whole aspect of where we don't connect the personality features, they're still utilities. Yes. Um, but imagine when we talk about the legal rights of a building, we're actually looking now, we work a lot in the Athabasca River Basin, which is a huge, enormous area up in northern Canada. And we're talking, we're talking in Canada about things like river basins and lakes becoming their own legal entities. Now, one of the things we're doing is we're monitoring the oil sands up in northern Alberta, um, because it does the river, Athabasca River flows right through it. So imagine, we make a digital twin of the river basin, it's all loaded up with sensors that are monitoring what's happening. And then that river basin becomes a legal entity that can indeed have legal rights and protect itself when, for example, it's being polluted. Okay. What would be the benefits in that, though? I mean, I understand reducing pollution of a river and stuff of that sort, but like, are there any other benefits to it besides that? Like, I mean, we have people that, you know, we can find out contaminants by testing the waters and things to be able to detect pollutants. Now, if you have a smart river that's able to do it by themselves, I just don't, I, I, I it that just seems like a lot. It, it is a lot. And yet the damage that we're doing to our environment uh, is so incredibly negative that we need to employ every tool we possibly can in order to change the situation. And what we find is that when people are more engaged with a natural environment, then they start to want to value it more. 
do you not think people would reject it? Like imagine if you made Yellowstone a digital twin of a Yellowstone, for instance, you have a national park where trees could talk to you and trees could tell you a bunch of situations and things of that sort. I feel like there's a lot of Luddites at heart that would just be like, I can't, I want to go camping and be away from technology. Well, absolutely. You, you should, um, and you should, and this is a really important aspect of what we're talking about is who owns the AI and who, uh, who can, who has access to the data and all those things. Just though on the, the subject of Yellowstone though, one of the things we're looking at as well is virtual tourism, where we could scan an arc, a, a very sensitive architectural site, which people can't actually visit, like the caves at Lascaux are now closed to people because people going into them, humidity and all sorts of other things damages those cave paintings. So they've created a virtual um, experience of the caves at Lascaux. So similarly, we could do other kinds of archaeological environments that are sensitive or maybe even too remote to be reached. And this would be a, a great thing for people to be able to experience. But the, the thing that is really important to me is who owns the AIs? I would like to see, and this is really important to me, the idea that individuals own their own AIs. So let's say when you enter the school system, you actually have an AI assigned to you if you want it. And that AI grows and learns with you throughout the entire school system. And when you graduate, then companies may hire you and your AI in order to work for them. Rather than, and in the other scenario is that companies develop all these AIs, normal people are left out of it. And as the AIs develop, and we know this will happen, more and more jobs will be lost and people will have nothing to do. Okay, so there's like two sides to that as well, too. I, I think people do need to work, but also I might be just conditioned to the aspect of that's all I've done my whole life, kind of like how everyone is. We don't have those digital copies of us that could work for us while we can just sit and do whatever we want. I feel like with enough time, you just end up getting bored. But what I did really want to touch upon is if you have a, uh, an AI that grows with a child through school, now this person, this kid gets to take this AI home if they want the AI and be able to talk to it, be able to bounce off you know math problems and things of that sort. And at the same time, these things both learn at the same capacity. Not only is it going to be there for emotional support as well, too, mental challenges, teenager phases where kids are self-doubting themselves and going through, it would fix a mental health crisis in a sense as well, too. And then you're just saying when they get out of school or whatever, they're able to be, that their AI, their digital twin could be hired by a company. Well, actually, I'm saying that they would both be hired by a company because we're still at the point where AIs and humans working together are a much more powerful team than either of us working individually. So the idea is that there's still things that humans do in terms of being creative and imaginative that AIs haven't mastered, and that's not gonna change for a while. So imagine though that you've, you and your AI, let's say, well, because I know architecture best, let's say both you and your AI are trained in architecture. You go off to work for a firm and they want you both because you've got the design chops and backing that up is you've got a really powerful intelligence helping you with things like foundation design or structural design. Things that would increase, I guess, oversight on situations where there might be hazards from someone that might not have accounted for some type of thing. I know there was a church, uh, it was like, like 10, 15 years ago that ended up every year sinking deeper and deeper into the ground because they, they didn't account for a certain situation of the landscape. And I mean, that's just a human error. I mean, that's an aspect of us all. It's what makes us human is the errors that we do make. And this is AI in a situation like that could actually account for something like that. Absolutely. And the, the, the buildings are a great example because on a building design, 
anything that can go wrong will go wrong. No matter what you think you know about the subsurface conditions, often you're surprised when you start to pour the foundations. And that can lead to incredible cost overruns. So the more we can know about the building sites and the data available, the better buildings will be and the safer they'll be. Now, can this be implemented? Like if we talk about a private scenario where someone's house, we could have a digital copy of somebody's house or an AI inside. It's not as simple as like making your house AI. It's kind of like another aspect where you just have AI involved into your house. Yeah. And the let's talk in terms of a house, the better way to think of it as a digital twin and a digital twin involves more than just AI. So what you have to have is First of all, you have to be able to visualize it in 3D. That's relatively simple. We do that all the time. Next, you have to embed sensors in that house so that it can actually get the data to act upon it. And then thirdly, you have to cognify it, as we said, um, so that it can start to learn from its own data and, and feedback, give feedback to you about how it's performing. Where would you see a massive implementation into this? If you could look at the public sector versus the private sector, would the private sector be the home? Well, that's that's difficult to say. We had a very interesting situation in Toronto and Canada where Google was going to come up and build this whole huge development on the waterfront called uh, Sidewalk. But there was a lot of pushback because basically once you entered that development, anything you did there was going to be tracked by Google. And we first, before we do anything, I think we need legislation that clearly spells out what our data rights are for now and in the future. And without that, we're, we're going down a very, very dangerous path. Is that one of your biggest concerns? Because I've talked to a lot of people about cybersecurity and data protection. I do have a lot of issues with Google. But with legislation, I mean, it's so hard because legislation trying to keep, keep up with the advancing technology that we have. I mean, there's things that we can't predict and we just can't make legislation so soon enough to be able to predict all these things that are end up happening. Like there was the Google car scandal. And I think 2007, they paid... $250,000 or something like that um, for their Google car that was taking pictures of the roadmaps was sucking up people's Wi-Fi. And during that time it was sucking up Wi-Fi, it was taking data chunks. I think this can be implemented in like the next, I mean, it might be sooner um, than what I'm going to say, you might think, but um, 10 years, 15 years. I mean, this is something that we're going to be new to, very new to. But we're going to adjust to the amazing benefits of it. I mean, if you can talk about environmental things is my first thing, just because I've been going down the environmental rabbit hole. I mean, if you can have a river that can predict when a company is dumping its massive pollution into its river, then it can alert somebody and then you can go find that company and hold them responsible. Yeah, but you're absolutely right. Without a consistent set of policies that are up to date in terms of the technology, we can't really cope with this situation. Now, I do have um, one of the books that I've written called The Architecture of Hope deals with a lot of these issues specifically. And I, as I mentioned, I do have um, some PowerPoints, which will yeah. talk about all of these things if you would like me to share them. I'll, um, yeah, I'm going to give you sharing options right now. Okay. There you go. And I just want to go to one of the things, there is a little video there. And I know that if we don't set the preferences right for, uh, for video, can I might. just ask one question? Are you a sci-fi fan? Uh, actually, I am. I, I can't. I, I own up to that because uh, it, there's incredible things. I find science fiction to be the best way of predicting the future. 
I have a lot of um, friends who are transhumanists, the people that like technology inside of themselves and that kind of whole route down there. And then I have a lot of people that work in AI and they're all sci-fi fans. And I'm like, I mean, I'm glad people are thinking about this stuff because these are things I, I'm a Luddite at heart. I mean, my technology, I go as far as my phone and maybe my laptop and my microphone, but it's just because I haven't adjusted to that technological landscape, I said. But I mean, even I, kids coming up now, they're digitally native. They're becoming uh, involved in this environment where technology is the main benefactor of a lot of situations. Well, you're absolutely right. It's not only that, we'll soon be teaching a generation of students in at university who've never known a world without smartphones. And they must be, you know, you put them into a, a standard lecture and here's we got, you know, students who are got advanced technology in their pocket and who play these complex and incredibly beautiful uh, video games. So um, when we do our presentations and we talk about things in Canada, we often also do a land acknowledgement. Um, and in particular, it becomes a very interesting concept when you're do, working <laughs> virtually. So we work all over the, the world and we are working and living on different indigenous people's lands just right across the globe. And it's our hope though, that when we start to look at some of these design issues, that we start to move beyond just merely acknowledging this, the land, but rather addressing the issues. So this is partly what's behind the architecture of hope is an is idea of sort of new ways of living. And it's really based on, this is a very famous Canadian, of course, Wayne Gretzky. And he said, we've got to, you got to skate to where the park puck is going, not where it's been. And that's a really important concept. At the moment, we're just trying to adapt to a very difficult set of circumstances in terms of climate change. We've got to move beyond that. And we need to tell a new kind of story about architecture, one that can act as a scaffold for hope. And it's one in which we can use architecture to regenerate not just the environment, but our economy, our society and ourselves. And to give you an example of that, I, I live here at that yellow dot in the Okanagan Valley in Canada. And I thought, well, what would a community of the future look like? So I found a piece of land about two kilometers long and one kilometer deep, which you can see here. And I thought about what we could put there. And in the book itself, um, one of the characters says that our communities are overpriced, poisonous, overcrowded, unhealthy, wasteful energy pigs. And again, not because they have to be, but because it suits the vested interests that build, operate, and control them. So let's unpack that and see if there's any truth to that. If you look at what buildings do to the environment, this is from the U.S. Green Building Council. You can see the enormous amount of energy that buildings consume and the huge amount of carbon dioxide that they pollute with, not to mention the raw materials and the waste. So you can see our buildings could be a lot better. Somebody actually said when looking at buildings that in terms of energy efficiency, it's not the low hanging fruit, it's the fruit that's lying on the ground rotting. And in fact, we basically are making brown boxes that take in all these wonderful things. And basically what they do is they spew out crap. And for that privilege, people pay. If you look at your utilities, it's almost like carrying a second mortgage. People pay huge amounts of money for these services that are basically being very, very destructive to the earth. So 
when I was doing my research for my PhD, they talk, I was looking at the internet and cyberspace and they talk about the architecture of the internet. And that's why we need to have a more expansive idea about architecture to really understand this. So the base, what I saw was an architecture consists of technologies and policies and values and design principles of which the design principles may be the, the most important one. But of course, these things don't work smoothly together like I've shown. They kind of tend to more grind against each other when we're, we're doing things. And each of these things is important, but the value system is perhaps the most important. There's a great book by Dan Ariely where he talks about market exchange, which is where we use money to buy things, but also social exchange, which is non-monetary and it's reciprocal. And you, he uses the example, and I think it's a great one, if you go to Thanksgiving dinner with your in-laws and you offer to pay your in-laws for the Thanksgiving dinner, you might not be invited back again because it's a non-monetary exchange and it's supposed to be reciprocal. So next year you might be hosting Thanksgiving, but this is very important. Social exchange is the foundation for a lot of the things that we do. But when it comes to thinking about that in terms of architecture, an architecture can be open or closed. So on the left hand side of the screen, you can see that there's all, all these things that are happening that where it's very open in terms of open source or social exchange, but over time, sometimes our systems tend towards the right side of the screen where things become more closed and that's where we are kind of right now. And the reason this is important is because we've got everything out of whack, I'm going to argue. Uh, if we looked at a different kind of drawing, we can see that things aren't working smoothly and in truth. We have irrelevant design principles. We're looking at aesthetics when we really need to look at other things. We're looking at antiquated or misunderstood technologies, a stunted policy framework that doesn't really keep pace and a very kind of bloated value system. We don't live in a knowledge economy or a service economy, but rather in a shareholder economy where short-term profits trump long-term benefits every time. And this is really, if you think about it, why we can't solve climate change, we could solve it tomorrow, but some companies would have to take a hit. And what's happened is that we've got this really distorted system where, for example, and these are Canadian uh, rates, um, the top tax rates in Canada over the last 50 years have gone from 70% to 33%. And corporate tax rates have gone from 38% to 15%. And it, this is made worse. We talk about you know policies that work, but as long as we have lobbying industries, which in the United States amounts to $3.47 billion a year, we're not going to be able to do the things that we need to do. And there's a book by Naomi Klein called This Changes Everything. It's really depressing to read, um, but it explains why each and every attempt to deal with climate change has been derailed, destroyed, or diluted by powerful lobbying groups. And this is something we need to change. And that's the reason I say, the wrong people are building the wrong infrastructure for the wrong reasons. And I'll deal with, show you some different examples in just a second. But if we had regenerative communities, here's all the things that we could be doing, not only purifying water and creating energy, but also creating income for the inhabitants, which would make a fair kind of uh, society. But in a sense, just, this all distills down to this statement. The big idea is that we could restore rather than destroy we could produce rather than consume, and we could purify rather than pollute, and not just the earth, but our bodies and minds as well. 
but we live in a very i think it took off since the industrial revolution we've just been on this spiral thing of trying to make money and we live in a business world i call a structuralized system it's kind of like people talk about the simulation i don't call it a simulation i call it, you find out you're in a system and necessarily when you step on that system you start to realize how you kind of really don't fit in a way. And I think it's because we put a lot of our personal ideas and experience in what we would call ethics. I'm always concerned about ethics of things. Now, if you ask a company that they might lose out on some money, but in the long run, it's going to be good for the environment. Well, to them, they're already thinking with money in their head. So if you're telling them to lose money, it's going to be very, very hard to change that. The climate subject is an important one because I go, especially what you've mentioned in a couple of slides. Imagine instead of working, worried about trying to replace the things with newer things that are better for the environment, imagine if the things that we are know we're going to keep expanding and building, we start focusing on a prioritization of the environment. We start focusing on this way of rebuilding with architecture by making something that doesn't hurt the environment around it. And then eventually, after time, you can replace out those old factories and it wouldn't cost so much. No, you're absolutely right. And, but that involves having really good policies. Now, for example, in British Columbia, which is one of the most forward thinking provinces in Canada, we've actually brought in a new building code called the step code. And when it reaches step five, it progresses through the years. It's step five, I believe, is in 2030. All new buildings will have to be net zero in terms of carbon emissions. And so this is where we can we can actually create policies that will move us in the right direction. But I can tell you, there was a hue and cry against the building codes, uh, that step five thing, by a lot of the construction industry because they felt it was an onerous um, new cost that was going to be added. And there was, as I say, a lot of opposition to it. So we're, we're still seeing that. And we're, we're, if you look at the history of all of those different conferences on climate change and the resolutions that were made, sadly, none of them have actually come to fruition because they've all been sort of just tinkered with and changed and tweaked to the point where they're not very effective at all. What I always worry about is, is when you say a rushed policy necessarily isn't a good policy. Like I'm always worried about with these ideas of 100% cutoffs, like we're going to have 100% this by this, we're gonna have 100% this by this. And I go, I, I get the rush and the capacity to want to change it too. But I also think that like, that's where you'll get your complainers. That's where you'll get the people that um, want to strike. And then next thing you know, that policy ends up going 10, 15 years without anybody doing anything about it. I think we need to set rational standards in the sense of like, you should be doing, you know, it should be an incentive. It should be a priority to want to make sure that you're not destroying everything that you basically are, are doing, but or the land around whatever you're trying to build. I mean, that should be common sense, but in the eyes of big business, it's just not. No, sadly, it isn't. And that's where we need. It, it's true. The I've also looked into policies and there's things called policy pathways, which I found quite interesting, where policies are not just cat. They're not cast in stone, but rather they evolve based on the evidence. And that's probably something we need to think about how we can have greater flexibility in terms of our policies that we create. But if we if we look at what this might look like in terms of a new architecture, well, we can sort of say, let's look at cooperative value systems. Let's look at human centric technologies. Let's look at policies that actually benefit people and other creatures and then look at regenerative design principles that everything we do should try to make our environment a better place. And again, 
this comes back. Here's the piece of land I was looking at. Um, this is what it looks like in October. And you can see this is one thing, that's the Okanagan Valley. But you can see, unless you irrigate in the Okanagan Valley, uh, things aren't green. So, but at the same time, we're just not working with nature properly because even on that site, there's these swales that go down, these sort of, they're not, usually don't have water in them, but at certain points they do. And this attracts where all of the, a lot of the trees grow. And so the first thing to think about when you're looking at a site is how can you restore more of the, the natural environment? And how can you accentuate these, these different swales in order to use the drainage pattern to your advantage? And that also involves what do you plant? And in this particular instance, I'm going to, uh, it's, it's sort of towards the end of the talk, but I'm suggesting planting aspen trees is a very good idea. And planting food forests is also a, a very good idea. We can start to absolutely integrate this natural environment into the way that we live. And then as well, it leads to the idea that the, the wonderful thing about the Okanagan is that um, there's wildlife all around. I, I, on regular basis, deers will walk down the road and that sort of thing. So thinking about how wildlife could simply move through an environment and keep that tremendous aspect of living in a, in a more rural environment is really important. Um, Do you think that once this all gets implemented in this specific location, that eventually once it's seen as it is workable and it is doable, that more places will follow suit? Oh, absolutely. The idea is to create a model for things that could work for us all. And so the idea is to, um, what I've tried to do at, at that point is, having looked at the natural environment and then to try to paint the landscape with houses. And here I'm actually going with the idea that people need space. I think we've been bamboozled into high, thinking high density is good for us, but I'm gonna tell you, every study that I have looked at is pretty much showing the negative impacts of high density. So it, the animal studies are just frightening when you put too many rats into the cage and, and horrible things happen. But even with humans, again, Dan Ariely did a study where he found that in the denser residences at a university or college, people were less likely to be community minded, less likely to socialize with other people, more isolated from it. So the higher the density, the less socialization was occurring. So it's a very interesting um, dynamic. And we have to be aware of this because even while we are social creatures, we also need our space. And there's, we could talk for hours about land, but the, I, I wanna give you an example of how we could do things differently. So let's see if this, um, if you can hear this video. The internet doesn't really cost you anything, it's just a connection. So however you can get plugged in, then you're on the internet. Nobody owns the internet. There's no one to pay. So I thought that was really important for, for two reasons. One, the statement, the internet doesn't belong to anybody is absolutely correct. But then of course, 
neither does the sun or the water or the wind. And that's that's really important. And I don't know what you're paying for. Um, I don't know what you're paying for internet, but I was just my internet rate just went up to over a hundred dollars a month, and the service isn't all that great. So you can see we're kind of it's a difficult situation with the services that we're receiving. Whereas if we start to look at them on a community-based level, things change dramatically. And again, here's another example. This this box that you see here, and it's about six feet tall and maybe 12 feet deep, it can clean the water of 1,200 households per day, and it costs $200,000. And it, it, we literally are talking black water from the toilet being cleaned and turned into potable water, which this thing can do. Now, where I live, a couple of years ago, they announced that they were doing a new water filtration plant, which was going to serve 2,000 houses, and it was going to cost $63 million. And you go, well, I, I suspect there's more to it than that. But two of these boxes, two of these filters for $400,000 would do the same, apparently, as a 63 million water filtration plant. And that's that's different. And so when we look at come back to this, we put water filtration plants so that the community can change and purify its own water. Now, those green little lines that you had back there, those were homes. Yes. So I want the homes to be distributed across the landscape. What exactly is a food forest? A food forest is a forest full of trees like walnuts and um, other kinds of, of trees that produce fruit. And so you build into the community a lot of its own food sources. Similarly, you know, if you look at batteries, batteries are now getting more and more efficient. So the batteries like this are the answer to working with photovoltaics and wind to store the, the energy. And a battery like this stores all of the energy that's necessary for like a small hotel. And again, distributing these around, you can start to see that we get mesh networks of batteries, water filtration, and other utilities that are owned and operated by the communities. And then the other thing is where we need to start looking at controlling our own food production with vertical farms. And let me give you, this is really interesting. Um, in terms of vertical farms, so here's the site. It's currently used as pasture land. And so it produces a certain amount of caloric yield. But if it was crops, you'd only need this blue square. That's all it, it would produce. That blue rectangle would produce the same amount of calories for, for people as the pasture land. But if you went with vertical farms, all you need is that little green rectangle to do the same caloric yield. And it, we can make it into like four, four-story vertical farms and have it just in a small area, it would be able to produce as much of the food content as the whole pasture land. So this vertical farms are a very interesting opportunity for us to grow our own food. What I'm getting out of this is that there's a way to be able to kind of live off the land like we did in the past. Um, but now with the technology that we use, it's not necessarily just like getting rid of all the growth that we've had as a society now, but just using 
older methods, but using the technology that we have now, if you're able to build smart homes, people don't need to be stacked up right on top of each other. And this is obviously going to be case by case basis here, depending on what city you live in, like New York, you know, that's going to be a little bit harder to be able to kind of ruralize out everybody, but you can essentially have your own sustainable cities and communities um, that aren't exactly on top of each other, that are able to meet energy requirements, are able to meet food requirements, and also not really have to worry so much about supply chain issues when it comes to regenerative farming, when it comes to all these aspects of making sure these communities can sustain for the populations that they have. Absolutely. That's really what we need to do. We should look at our communities as the building block for a more sustainable, regenerative planet. I'm with you. So when we look at that, um, and again, this speaks to that point, we can no longer rely on our politicians and business leaders to solve our problems or treat us fairly. This is a kind of a depressing statement, but what we've seen is too much, too often, that we've seen our governments are just sort of just not there for us, uh, but we have the means to solve our problems. I'm with you, and I've never felt more comfortable with you. <laughs> okay. Um, and so the, one of the first things, though, is the idea that we want to work in partnership with the site. And we talk about the built environment, but you really have to think, why is it different from the natural environment? This is a this is actually a bird's nest in a tree on the site that I was showing you. I saw this picture, but for a while, I, I couldn't even see the bird's nest because it was so well integrated into the tree. Um, and it's difficult to see there, but it's a beautiful example of how birds live absolutely in harmony with the built environment, obviously. Um, so we need to start looking at different human-centric technologies to really transcend into an integrated architecture of regeneration. And here's what I was thinking in terms of, um, you know, we can, our values are about insulation. So we can really, really insulate houses and really reduce the need for mechanical systems. But at the same time, we can add in some other things too. Um, wind turbines, photovoltaics. Uh, I look, I like the idea of utilidor, so all the services can go through uh, in a single space. I'll, I'm going to talk about the Warka Tower and the earth tubes in just a second, but green roofs and walls are also an essential component of this. So the Warka Tower, which is the um, is a word from Ethiopia for a giant fig tree. Basically, what it does is this guy, Arturo Vittori, invented this system. What it harvests water um, from humidity and condensation, even in some of the driest parts of the world. And the Okanagan actually is very dry. So it ha harvests fog and it harvests dew to bring, you know, liters of water a day to uh, populations where it's very, very dry. So this is a simple thing. This is this is absolutely low tech. And so is this. A friend of mine, or actually one of my other faculty members, Trevor Butler, he builds these earth tubes and they're like poor man's geothermal. So you just bury them down about 12 feet and 12 feet down, even in Canada or around the world, you get a constant temperature year round. And by doing that, you can pull in cooler air in the summer and warmer air in the winter. And I've actually seen this work. We, we put sensors into um, these earth tubes somewhere in Kelowna. It was a really hot day. And I watched the temperature in this little carriage house drop by about 10 degrees just when the earth tubes were turned on and the air came flowing in. So you can really make some dramatic differences with really simple technologies. You know, the argument when it comes to things of this sort is usually the technology isn't there yet. But what you're kind of saying is we have the technology to make it maybe not at the scale of what they're talking about, but able to implement it now. Oh, yeah. This 
Absolutely. Trevor is building, this is another example in Kelowna, he's building these things all over uh, the province. So they're there and they're simple and they're cheap and they're effective. So, and th that's why what we need to do is start to integrate these things. So how does your photovoltaics work with your wind turbine, work with your earth tubes? And then how does your um, water system work together with your towers and your green roofs and your walls? And then how do both those systems work together? And as we, we solve that, then we, we get an absolutely different kind of approach to buildings. And so previously I showed you this, but now imagine if we, we change all of this around. So here, we take in garbage, we take in CO2, we take in sewage and turn them into good things. We take in, we take advantage of all of these wonderful things and we generate more energy than we need, more food than we eat, more air than we breathe, more water than we pollute and more materials. So we start sending things out. We're actually producing rather than consuming. And the hope is, of course, that if you do all of those things, the homeowner would realize some of the benefits as well. So if you've got photovoltaics, but you've got a really highly energy efficient house, you sell back electricity to the grid. And so this has an enormous implication because it allow, for example, seniors to stay in their homes for longer because they could afford them. It would, if a house is generating money, it makes housing more affordable too. But the other thing is, and this is really important to me, is aesthetics. Um, so these things don't have to be ugly. This is an example, Sarah Hall is a stained glass artist and this is a ventilation shaft. And what she's done though, is she's integrated her stained glass work with those black squares, which are photovoltaics into this simple ventilation shaft and made it into a thing that I think is quite beautiful. It looks like an art piece. It is, it's a beautiful art piece. And uh, uh, she's, doing, she's doing these kinds of things all across the country. So integrating photovoltaics into stained glass would make them into a, a kind of a must have kind of item. And so we can look at that, you know, there's, there's insulation things like aero, aerogel, which is amazing. It's so lightweight, it's absolutely flame resistant and it has huge insulation values. We wrap that in things like nanocrystalline cellulose, which is made from fiber products, but it's, it's really, really strong. And then we wrap them in photovoltaics. So everything is really generating energy. And then of course, I have to talk about the sensors. We mentioned earlier that in order to make these things intelligent, then we have a shared community database, which then could become kind of an AI to guide the entire community. And then we wrap them. Um, we're looking at different encryption systems. Somebody told me that, well, blockchain is nice. It'll be uh, probably cracked within about 10 years. But by that point, we should have quantum encryption. And this is, this is not, this is going, it sounds like science fiction, but all of this is becoming very, very possible. So then looking at these things, what would it start to look like? Well, I start to map out and see how these different systems could work together to make the kind of housing that would look like this, that would have all these systems integrated to it, but would be incredibly green. And even at night though, I, I love the idea of, of, I don't know if you know about projection mapping, but there's people who are doing these incredible projections where buildings start to have these malleable uh, kind of facades that change constantly. But to get to that point, We've got to go back a little bit. Um, there's this incredible story of this town in the Basque region of Spain called Mondragon. And this priest comes to Mondragon, his name is Erez Mendiarreta, 
Um, and he comes there after World War II and the, the town has been devastated by the Spanish Civil War. And he says, here's what we need. We need a factory, we need an educational institution and we need a financial institution. And then they, what they did was they formed a technical institute. They made a factory for making kerosene stoves and they formed a local credit union. And they made a cooperative business out of it with these 10 principles. And the, one of the most interesting ones that we don't even think about is capital as an instrument of labor, which is in contrast to the inverse, which is labor as an instrument of capital. When you're looking at labor as an instrument of capital, then if you can find a new machine that reduces the number of laborers you use, then you're gonna do it. But if you're looking at capital as an instrument of labor, you're looking at these machines, not as a way of getting rid of people, but a way of making their labor more effective. And this is a very valuable business proposition. Mondragon today employs 75,000 people around the globe and has revenues of 12 billion euros. But one of the things that they do is they say the maximum pay rate or differential between the lowest paid employee and the highest is like one to nine. Whereas in the United States, it's not just the, the um, that uses the FTSE 100 as a one to 129, but in the United States, it's now one to 400. And that's one of the reasons why we have such inequity in our income. So Mondragon provides a valuable, a viable business proposition for how we could do things differently. And so in, in the community that I was looking at, I said, okay, instead of a factory, we'll have deep geothermal and makerspace, which I'll talk about in a second, an online university, and then a different approach to how we might do the money as well. And deep geothermal, moving from earth tubes. Now, this is, a, this is still a little bit out there, but you know we drill down far enough all of a sudden you can get to temperatures that are so hot you put water down just like into a radiator put water down cold water down it gets superheated comes back up and it can drive steam turbines to generate electricity now you only have to drill down where i live here's just so you see this is a geothermal map and i live right there where the red circle is and you only have to drill down a kilometer to get to those temperatures now a kilometer is nothing to the oil and gas industry to do, drill down a kilometer. We could be doing this all over Canada and the United States and creating free energy forever. And here's an example in Saskatchewan. Here's they've got these five, these five to 20 megawatt power plants, each of which could power up to 5,000 households. And it's a renewable resource because you keep the water recirculating and it goes forever if you do it properly. So this this means that we could have unlimited energy in, in not everywhere because some places you'd have to drill too deep, but in many spots of Canada and the United States. And so we take this back, we make the makerspace, we make the power stations, um, and we create kind of a new kind of approach to the way we do things. Now, this is a very interesting example though that I wanted to share because we think, oh, we need so much money to do this. Well, you don't. A group of women who were basically living on the streets of Nairobi pooled their, their money and they got a loan from the Jamabora Trust and they bought their own property and then they developed the means to build these all these brick houses for themselves and now they've built their own community um, with these microloans 
So you don't need a huge amount of money even to make your own community. The problem is we need to make those communities economically sustainable. So this is called the, the Preston model, but there's also Cleveland did the same thing. Basically what they did, and it's really simple, they asked their anchor institutions like hospitals and universities to um, only source their labor and materials and supplies locally. Now that sounds just so simple. You think, well, why doesn't everybody do that? Because it cascades through the entire community, creating jobs and all sorts of other things, as this diagram shows. Um, we need to do this. This should, we should, we've got to relocalize and decentralize a lot of what we do. And I wanted to just finish with a, a really important thing that's that's happening. The reason um, the that we want to do some of these things, you know, also creating the mesh networks and all of these things, but we're we're facing terrible consequences of our actions. This is from this is from 2021. Last year was just horrible where I live. Imagine we burnt an area the size of Cyprus in last year. And then of course, what what I don't have a slide for this, but because of the burning and the forest being cut away, then we had uh, torrential rains in the fall and the rivers overflowed their banks and ripped all the highways and bridges apart. It was it's, was just an ecological disaster. Um, but you'd think we'd learn a little bit from that, but we don't. So aspen trees have this incredible property um, that they actually act as natural fire breaks. So aspen trees, you can see here, they start this fire, it burns through the pine trees, it hits the aspen trees and it stops. And yet in British Columbia, what we do every year is we poison the aspen trees because they're not valuable softwood. They actually poison them with something like Roundup. So I'm saying we surround our communities with aspen trees, we get these natural fire breaks. And this is the, the real point of the whole thing is that we've got, if we start to think differently, then when it reaches, when our architecture reaches its real fulfillment, it will transcend into hope. And I believe that our architecture can play a major role in doing exactly that. And that's what the whole book is, is all about. I understand when it comes to technology would be on the first, I guess, mind of everybody who's looking at this. Like, do we have the technology to be able to implement this? And I'm sure we do, but I also worry about other humans as well, too. I mean, we do have a portion of our society that necessarily isn't what I would call the healthiest or the mentally healthy, um, especially with forest fires as well, too. There's a survey from California. 2001 to 2019, that more fires that were produced from there were actually human-made fires. And there's a scenario where a substitute teacher from a university actually lit a fire around firefighters fighting those fires. Where I go, even though that might be a rare thing, I mean, this is really good in slideshow and on this. But when we talk about a society, like encryption issues is the easiest example. People being able to hack into other people's equipment or be able to steal other people's data is a very simple, common thing we can point at. But then we look at the extreme scenarios where we talk about civilizations and new homes being built in this style. What stops somebody from not following suit and wanting to be a part of this community? Yeah. And, and there's no doubt about it. Uh, you're absolutely right about forest fires. I, we had a forest fire here um, in 2017 where the evacuation line was right along my back fence. And it had, it had been set by some idiot who 
guess was doing it for a lark. Um, and it, it's a tragedy that this is the way that we've evolved. So, but, you know, we're going to have people who do that sort of thing, no matter where we live. And so we have to, we have to take steps to make sure though, that we protect ourselves when somebody um, has issues. And a lot of these people are, um, are, are mentally ill. And we need to also think about how we deal with that. Sadly, we, um, in the Canada and the United States, we often tend to push the mentally ill people out and, and out onto the streets where they become um, homeless. And so we, the idea of trying to figure out how we can make affordable housing for everybody is really critical. I mean, imagine if, if you or I lost our homes or our apartments or our jobs and we were pushed out onto the street, I suspect we'd start to have some mental issues very quickly. I think you should implement this in the smallest strategies. I mean, everyone's going to think of probably incorporating this type of technology and how we get it there to countries that are more impoverished. But I would look at aspects also when we talk about taking care of the elderly as well, too. I mean, you're not going to have a lot of <laughs> crazy elderly people that are going to be setting fires and things of that sort. You'll have more people that will be adjusting to the lifestyle and making sure that they can live a sustainable life as well, too. And then I think offering up the option for anybody that's willing to try this type of method too. And then eventually it'll become the mainstream. Yes. And you're right. And with, with the elderly, you know, um, everybody's had a, a, a parent who went as they got older and they were more forgetful, they do things like leave the stove elements on and stuff like that. So they're not deliberately setting fires, but they fires happen nonetheless. And some of these things, you know, um, when we talk about people working with AIs for, the seniors as they as they get older the idea that there'd be something someone or some entity there to help them um, and maybe even remind them to turn off the stove could be incredibly valuable have you ever heard of the venus project no i haven't it was kind of this idea that if we got like all these global um countries and all these ma massive powers i would say to kind of follow suit with this idea of peace and being able to build up as sustainable humans thinking more about a human species rather than just individual countries with you know invisible lines in the sand it, uh, for me i've said in the past it's probably it's basically impossible on the track that we're on now but i also think it's about showing them a more productive method which is this right here you know these sustainable communities these types of things showing that that it is possible and it doesn't take much necessarily you're going to have everybody hop on board the very first day no it's going to probably take time but i mean once you know i had a conversation with someone about solar panels and i mentioned that you know my buddy for instance he had solar panels on his house he goes and brags about how his electric bills cut almost in half you get to this aspect of like oh well maybe i should start getting electric panels and the next thing you know you have everybody following suit i also saw an incredible presentation it was really really good uh, and this architect suggested that if we really wanted solar panels to take off we start thinking of them as kind of luxury goods or art objects. In other words, that if you've got, if, if, if you know, like a granite countertop in your kitchen, that's a kind of a, a status item. What if solar panels were a status item because they had some beautiful design on them or something? That's one way to really make this stuff happen. And it's, um, uh, it, it's that we need to think outside the box in terms of how we actually do make these things become popular to everybody. Um, but I actually believe, and it's the, the next book I'm writing, is that we, this, it starts with education. And how do we create a global system of education, which is not just like, it's not bottom line stuff, but rather top of the line stuff. Imagine this, 
In 2025, someone has estimated that three quarters of the people connecting to the internet will be doing so on their smartphones exclusively. So now we have this incredible vehicle to reach people all over the world. And then we've seen, I, I've talked to the people at Ubisoft and other video game companies, because what they're providing in terms of their historical environments, I'm not a big fan of violent video games, but Assassin's Creed has these incredible environments like ancient Egypt and ancient Greece, which is way better than anything I can show my students about those, those historical periods. Um, imagine if we could make an undergraduate degree that was available on your smartphone, but was like a video game and that taught you everything you needed to know in a four year degree. Now it would cost the same amount, you know, as a really high price value, you know, next generation video game, but we're talking 200, $300 million to, to really do something like that. And when you look at the price of a fighter jet, for example, um, we're buying these F-35s or F-20, I think they're F-35s and they cost $80 million a piece. If a few developed nations said, okay, well, we're gonna buy, we're gonna buy one less fighter jet and we're going to bankroll a global education system, it, it would change everything. I, I definitely think when it comes to military purchases, I think that's their first priority, just in a fear aspect of military, you know, tactics and all that as well, too. Is that's always a, it's a huge funding issue right there. But I, I look at these the, you know, this type of living and these ideas that we're talking about. And I go, I don't think it's going to be, it might be my generation, but it's also, it's going to be the future generations. And it, it, here's where we kind of come across this double-edged sword or this weird deal that's going on in society is that to stop climate change, to worry about climate change, the whole idea is that you have to sacrifice and your kids are going to have to sacrifice, but your grandkids are going to have a great future. Well, if we talk about better education, it starts with those grandkids. It starts with those future generations. If you start implementing it in schools now, I mean, necessarily people think we don't have the time. I think we do. I think with having education systems teach more about AI and also digital learning and all these types of experiences that are now becoming basically the majority now. I mean, online learning is something completely new since COVID. I, I, it hopefully doesn't take a pandemic or some type of massive situation to get people to teach this way. But this implementation of this, you start having people that are eventually going to take positions in industry and business and, you know, take over these companies and start thinking with that mindset of doing exactly what we're talking about here today. It's just, you have a lot of people right now, especially people that own businesses that are more about making money. And it's very, very hard to get people to care about future generations or things that they can't see when they're worried about the situations that they're in now. And I think that starts with, we need to better educate on some aspects, not aspects of climate change, but just aspects of sustainable living, taking care of yourself. I mean, it's common sense to think that you want to be able to produce your own energy, not worry about another place doing it for you. I mean, that's common logic. But a lot of people don't think of it that way. A lot of people think of it like, what's the cheapest option without having to do any work? And it's like, necessarily, you have to do work, maybe for a brief amount of time, but then the eventual payoff, it ends up taking care of itself. I agree. I, I, but I also think that we could, without any loss or, or decrease in our quality of life, we could actually make better living for everybody. And again, the pandemic provides a really interesting example of this because um, it suggests that maybe this daily commute that we've been doing for the last, oh, you know, 40 or 50 years isn't really necessary. 
I, I for example, um, since I started with Athabasca University in 2012, I have always worked out of my home office here in the Okanagan. My daily commute consists of going from the coffee machine in the kitchen into my office here. And so that's that's a really valuable aspect to it. I don't feel um, I don't really feel any uh, loss of quality in terms of the way that I work. And in fact, it, the one negative aspect is you're kind of expected uh, to work 24 seven because you're always on. Right. And so with time zones and things, you may be I may be chatting to somebody in South Africa at eight o'clock my time in the morning. Um, and then there's the Australians will be online and doing a lecture at nine o'clock my time at, at night. So it it is a kind of a burden. But the whole idea that you could you could now work from almost any place. I mean, you could do this podcast. You're in Maryland. But if you if you had to do it from Texas uh, next month, you could you could do that quite easily. I could work here in the Okanagan doing my job, or I could go um, I could go to Calgary or Edmonton or any city. It, all I really need is my laptop. So why do we why are if we can work anywhere we want? Why don't we start working where we want? And I think we could make people's lives a lot better. Imagine if we had good Wi-Fi everywhere, you could go out and work in the park all morning, and there'd be no reason why you couldn't. Yeah, it's, 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 it's the way you say it's, it sounds so simple and sounds so easy. I just think people have to think of it in that way. I don't think they're being told that. I mean, it's not the priority in a sense that to think of this way or to think in this type of manner. I mean, it's a lot of it right now. People are just worried about getting through the day. And I think that is because we do live in that business model. And I think that business model really has to shift in some sense. I get that it's profitable and I get that this is how we've always been doing it, but we're always going to have problems. You might as well try something new. Yeah, and I agree. That's why I think cooperatives where the ordinary person is a basically a shareholder in the cooperative um, is really the way to go, because we, we've kind of we, we had this idea about trickle down economics and sadly, it didn't work. It the uh, we had a, there's a Canadian comedian called Charlie Farkasen, and he said the way the trickle down economy works is if you feed the horses enough oats, sooner or later, the sparrows get some. And that's kind of like the way our economy works today. We're really not seeing any benefits from the fact that we've lowered corporate taxes, we've lowered the highest tax rates, it's not being reinvested. And Canadian and I think American wages are actually stagnating. Whereas in a cooperative where like Mondragon, where the difference between the highest paid and the lowest paid is only a factor of 10. Well, that's a very different proposition. Sadly, a lot of the executive compensation has increased so exponentially over the years, but it's almost at obscene levels compared to the, the ordinary person working in a corporation. I think uh, a lot of that falls onto policy. I'm just, I'm not the person that could tell you which policy is the correct policy to choose from. Um, I think this is an argument that people have been dealing with for a while now. I also think that I worry more about ethics on things as well, too. And when you were showing that, you know, the, the scenario, the circle, everything that's kind of like, it seems like this is what it's supposed to be. And this is kind of how it always is. I think there's an effective way to be able to do it properly, but it's about resetting it back to the start. I mean, sadly, nobody wants to hear that, you know, we have to toss out some progress a little bit, but 
progress in the wrong direction is not really progress. I mean, it's kind of staying stagnant in a sense, moving a step back. It's like, there's a way to rebalance everything with proper, you know, a, a spheric model where we can have this cooperation and also have some advancement as well too. Yes. And in some ways, our current business model is actually holding back progress because what you see happen is a company develops a new technology and then they employ the patent laws to create what are called patent thickets around their idea so that nobody can come close to it, which means that they've tightened it up so much that people are fearful of doing something similar. Whereas when the internet was first developed, it, you know, it was completely wide open in terms of access to the code and to access to the protocols, which is why it was a success. And it also though led to huge numbers of new innovations. I mean, the fact that people like Zuckerberg was able to create Facebook or the, the guys who did Google, these were really just talented amateurs who were able to take this open structure and make something of it. And that's what we need to remember rather than closing down all of these new technologies, we really need to open them up. And also to remember just how long it does take a new technology to really take off. The internet was de you know, developed in 1969, but it wasn't until ordinary people got hold of it that it just blossomed into this worldwide phenomenon. Well, as soon as somebody breaks ground, it's very, very hard to get them to want to share the secrets so everyone can break ground. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen Ready Player One, but the one guy beats the first race and gets the first key. Then he tells a friend and the friend gets the key. Then the friend tells another friend and a friend tells another friend. Next, you know, he had a head start for a couple of days and then everyone's at the same level with all the same key because everyone figured out how to do it. I mean, but he wasn't happy with it. But at the same time, it caused him to work harder. I think progress progression in society isn't just about one person getting the secret and keeping the secret family secrets, family recipes, any of these types of things. I think they're meant to be shared. But I also think that when you hold on to that secret for so long, you coast off that one success. And it actually might prevent you from creating more innovation, actually being more creative in some aspects, trying to strive for another second creation. Well, you know, a Ready Player One is really a great example because on the one hand, you have what I would say the kind of the social exchange of all of these players. I think his name is Wade, right? He shares this with, with the other players. On the, on the other hand, you have the, the market economy of the company that's trying to take control of the Oasis, if I remember, um, and really use it for corporate, only for corporate profits. And so you, it's a, it, it encapsulates this whole kind of discussion we've been having about open or closed architectures. Well, Douglas, I really appreciate you giving me your time. I'm happy you brought up some slides. I haven't had a good PowerPoint in a long time. Um, I like learning about this type of stuff because it's just interesting to see what everybody's working with because you always learn something new. But is there a place where people can find your book and also um, any of your links that you would like to promote? Um, yes, actually. Everything I spoke about this morning has is actually got links in the book itself. And uh, you can find the book um, with Woodlake Publishing. And so if you actually, if you just type in the architecture of hope, you should be able to find it online. I'll make sure I link it all in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting and thanks for listening to this episode of out of the blank podcast.